1: The
0: first degree. 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 The
1: first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life.
3: We had no idea who it was, only that Somebody had my best friend's cell phone, and now they just called me. Do they know where we live? Can they find us? Like, I had no idea. I knew that Andrew wasn't involved in anything sketchy or shifty. Like, it's not like there was some kind of crazy drug ring or goofiness happening, but it was not knowing was part of the fear.
4: Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And just to let everybody know, I know there's been a lot of questions, but we are pushing our Patreon launch till next week because we have so much content that we needed to upload and we want to make sure everything is perfect for our launch. So stick around next week because it's going to be a doozy. It's so good. We are so proud of this thing. But right now we're going to jump right into our episode. So what day is it today, Billy?
1: All right. Well, it, this is a tough one to choose from. We got National Twinkie Day. Ew. Yeah, uh, but we got Plan Your Epitaph Day. Mm-hmm. Epitaph? Yeah, what you would have on your tombstone,
2: grave. Why don't they just? Why isn't there a better word for that?
4: <laughs> Epitaph. I kind of like it.
1: Well, what would it I be? I guess it sounds
4: kind of old worldy. I guess.
1: Yes. What would you put on your on your quick quick right now? Boom. What would it be? Jack Vanek.
4: Oh, my she didn't God. care. She didn't care. Would be Jax. <laughs> I love it. I cared about nothing. Apathetic to the end. And then Alexis I died.
1: would be. She cared too much.
4: She cared way too much. <laughs> and we'll go and next to each still
2: other. and cares yes. still beyond the grave. She, yes. she cares still even in death. When you have a lot of feelings inside, they follow you post mortem.
1: What would yours be, Billy? Mine would just be he tried. <laughs>
4: <laughs> he tried. He tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it didn't even matter. Yeah. lincoln park i'm wearing a lincoln park hoodie right now too really works out honestly full circle moment full circle moment okay well um i think that that is enough of that so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety
1: because this could be you
4: Today's case takes us back to March 8th of 2004. Songs topping the charts were Yeah by Usher and Lil John, Me, Myself, and I by Beyonce, and Hey Yeah by Outkast, which is one of our dear Alexis's favorite songs of all time. All time. <laughs> so all time. random. So random. Dave,
2: I had to put it in there. I know you would say it, but I'm like, I ve- that's how much I love this song. But I love on. it.
4: You do love random songs. So I the really top do. movie. Uh, in theaters was The Passion of the Christ. Number two was Starsky and Hutch. Number three was Disney's Hidalgo. And number four was Fifty First First Dates. People were watching Deadwood on TV. And The Last Juror* by John Grisham was the number one book at the time. And it was a Monday under the sign of Pisces, if you care about that stuff.
1: And the setting for today's case is Columbus, Ohio, which is the U.S.'s 15th largest city. And Columbus is kind of the crossroads of America, of Americans live within 600 miles of Columbus. And recently, I spent a lot of time there. My next book, Killers Amidst Killers, is there. The opioid epidemic has really affected the city and all of Southern Ohio. There's a lot of despair in Columbus, but it's also the capital of Ohio. So you have lawmakers walking around that will hopefully address the problem. But in 2004, life was different in Columbus.
2: Right. And someone who's an expert on this area is our first degree for today's case. And her name is Julie.
3: Ohio is fucking crazy. I feel like there is a lot of crime that either doesn't get shared or shared very much because maybe it's because of the Ohio State University or Les Lexner and all of his billions. Maybe they just try to hide stuff. I don't know, but I feel like every year there's one big, major, crazy murder here.
2: Julie was born and raised in Ohio, and she was living in Columbus in 2004. At the time, Julie was in her 20s and had set up an idyllic life for herself. She lived in a condo with her fiancé, and she also had a lot of amazing friends. And one of her closest friends was another 24-year-old named Andrea Nance, and she went by Drea. And it's really the inception of Julie and Andrea's friendship that is the starting point for today's story.
3: But yeah, I, I guess I don't really know where to start other than, you know, it's the beginning. When I first met Andrea, was September of 2000 was when I first met her. And we just like, automatically clicked. We became really fast and really good friends. She was like an immediate sister.
2: Julie and Andrea met the way a lot of early 20-somethings did, at work. And by 2004, they'd been close friends for four years, which, when you think about it, is pretty much a sixth of each of their lives, so a significant amount of time. And they were at an age where our lives pretty much completely revolved around friendships.
3: We were working together at a company we both hated. <laughs> and we just really quickly became friends. And that was in Worthington, Ohio, which is just right outside city of Columbus. We was just in the office and send instant messages back and forth about nonsense or like, oh, well, what are we going to do later? <laughs> it was never about work. You
4: know? Julia and Andrea had so much in common. They both worked hard and they both loved to have fun. And beyond that, they managed to balance working with their social lives while trying to uncover their passions and finding their places in the big bad world. They were living their best lives, navigating the dichotomy of being productive young adults while having as much fun as possible. She
3: was a student at the time, but I had already graduated college at this point. She was taking some part-time classes in addition to working full-time, so she was very busy. So we would be planning happy hours and fun and whatever the adventures were going to be. We had a pretty nice circle of mutual friends. We'd get together and sit and laugh. You just did so many different things. The shopping was endless. It seemed like the pool, the day drinking, the stuff that young out of college kids do just to enjoy themselves. So we were just kind of, you know, young kids starting life and, you know, just beginning on this planet.
4: And another thing Julie and Andrea loved to do together was go scope out the local music scene. And these are women of my own heart because that's what I was doing at their age. And this was 2004. This is a great, great time for music. So it's really bringing me back and making me feel all nostalgic.
3: Oh, my gosh. We loved going to listen to live
4: music, going to check out
3: local bands.
1: And it was during one of these nights when the two besties went to see a local band and someone caught Andrea's attention.
3: One of the bands that we used to love to go and see, she ended up dating one of the guitar players.
1: This guitar player's name was Patrick, and he would end up being someone who would become pretty significant in her life. A romantic relationship ultimately blossomed between them. But, as is the case with so many instances of young love, things weren't always perfect.
3: They were kind of one of those on-again, off-again, was a little bit older than... than We were, and, you know, it was kind of one of those things that the ideal world could, a relationship like that, work. Probably not, but it's really nice and fun when you're in it. Besides working her day
2: job with Julie, having an active social life, and a sexy band boyfriend named Patrick, Andrea also had two other jobs. She worked as a waitress at a restaurant called The Hickory House, and she also worked as a part-time bank teller. A few months earlier, she was also balancing taking classes at a local college. Columbus State Community College, but by spring of 2004, she was taking a few months off from school while she worked to hone in on a career path she was really excited about. And no shame in that game. It's hard to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life, and it's a really important decision. And Julie was right alongside Andrea for all of this.
4: Right, and they were two besties navigating this weird, confusing thing called life, and Julie was happy to have found a friend in Andrea because friendships like this were really rare.
3: Being Andrea's friend I think really helped people learn how to communicate with each other, not just tell you what you want to hear and Andrea just had a way of putting it out there that you might not like and suck it up, (laughs) Buttercup. So she was easy to talk to if you wanted to know the truth. But if you didn't want to know, then don't ask. You know, it's kind of The way that she put it, she was an amazing listener, just so big hearted, Uh, a great friend, sister, aunt. If you were part of her life, you definitely felt special and you knew that you were chosen to be in it.
4: Andrea's authentic, honest approach to life was one of the many things that drew Julie to her. The friends continued to grow closer and closer. And we mentioned that Julie had a fiance, her wedding date was also approaching quickly and her pick for maid of honor seemed like an obvious one
3: i was marrying my college sweetheart and andrea in the time of our friendship they had become really great friends too we called our guest room in our in our home we called it andrea's room cuz she was constantly staying over we would go out i was bartending and she would come to the bar that i worked at and we would it was so close we'd just walk back you know <laughs> to my to my condo <laughs> just stay up laughing. She was truly a part of our family.
1: In early May of 2004, things continued to be awesome in the lives of these two friends. Both ladies were busy. Both were in relationships. Both were juggling multiple jobs. And Julie was planning a wedding, and Andrew was preparing for the always important maid of honor role. Regardless of the obligations and tribulations, they continued to make time for each other. And this time they made for each other included daily morning phone calls.
3: Andrea and I talked every single day at 10.30 in the morning. And one of her jobs at that time was teller at National City. So she would call me before she would actually get into work for her shift.
2: The two friends had a call on the morning of March 8, 2004, as they had so many days before. Julie was working her part-time job bartending at night, and she was working that night, and they made plans for Andrea to meet Julie as the bar was closing at the bar. Then they'd go back to Julie's place and have a girls' night.
3: We made a plan that she was going to come and hang out with me because I had to close. I would be done on during the middle of the week, maybe around midnight. She was going to be driving over to the bar I worked at, and then we would be going back to my condo and to TV binge-watching. We had had a bunch of Netflix DVDs, because back then you still would get the DVDs online.
4: So we realized that there are a lot of younger millennials that listen to our podcast, and I don't know if you guys even remember this, but in the beginning of Netflix, they used to send us physical DVDs to our house that we'd have to ship back and then get new ones. So that's an interesting little tidbit for the story, but back to Julie.
3: So we were going to just do a bunch of movies. We loved watching Goonies, so... That was going to be just what our evening was, drinking and watching Goonies together,
1: hanging out. Ah, yes. It sounds like a perfect girls' night to me. These ladies made their plan. Andrea would meet Julie around closing time. They would hang out until it was time to go, and then they were going to walk back to the condo, Julie shared with her fiancé, and they were going to watch Netflix.
2: After their morning call, the two friends went on their way, knowing they'd see each other later. And Julie's shift at the bar that night was uneventful. When the bar was closing, she waited Andrea to appear. She waited and waited and waited and waited, but Andrea never showed up. Julie called and texted her cell, wondering where she was.
4: So she never showed, never called, never responded to a text. Julie tried hopelessly to reach Andrea, but her calls and texts to her cell continued to go unanswered. And this was all extremely out of character for Andrea. That was just really weird to me. It was really weird to her because Andrea was not the type to flake. She juggled multiple jobs, school, and a social life pretty effortlessly. Julie told her fiance about trying to reach Andrea.
3: When I went to bed that night, you know, and I even told my fiance like it was really bizarre that Andrea was a no-show and you can't get a hold of her. Like, like, well, did you text Levon, who who's her roommate?
1: The Levon Julie's fiance asked about was Andrea's roommate.
3: At the time, I hadn't, but I just was like, sure, what the heck, why not? I might as well. Julie did as her fiancé suggested. So I sent him over a text, never heard back, which was also very odd. So now it's like, hmm, well, did they go out together? Which would be weird because they were very different people, but they were still friends enough to be
1: able to live together as roommates. So the plot was starting to thicken. Julie couldn't reach Andrea or her roommate. And her mind started spinning with the possibilities. Remember, by this point, it's late. So one of those possibilities was that Andrea and LaVon could both be asleep. Maybe something happened to Andrea's phone. Maybe Andrea got tied up with Patrick, her on-again, off-again boyfriend. Anything was possible. Andrea had a lot of friends. She had three jobs. She had a big family. She could be anywhere with anyone. Julie had done all she could. So she had no choice but to wait to hear back from her friend.
3: The morning of... The ninth when I woke up and I had zero responses from her, that was still really weird and unsettling. Our 1030 call, she never called me, didn't answer. And now I'm like super worried because there's no response.
4: When Julie still had no response from Andrea, she continued to try and track her down. I couldn't get a hold of her mom. I have been trying to get like, call her.
2: In her search, Julie was hitting one dead end after the next. And then she received a phone call, which revealed to her that she wasn't the only one looking for Andrea.
3: One of our friends who worked with Andrea at the bank, his name is Rob. Rob called me and was like, Jules, is Andrea coming to work today?
2: So it was one thing for Andrea to flake on social plans. But for her to be a no-call, no-show at work? No just know. And I think at this point, the severity of the situation was starting to come fully into view. This was getting increasingly alarming. Andrea's radio silence and inexplicable absence was a puzzle that several people who knew her were trying to make sense of. Julie didn't know what to say to Andrea's co-worker from the bank when he called.
3: I'm like, well, I don't know. She didn't even show up last night. Like, she never came over, so I don't even know where she's at. And so we kind of went on the hunt. Nobody could find her and nobody was hearing from her.
4: The search for Andrea continued into that afternoon. Then finally, Julie's phone rang. She was relieved to see the name of Andrea's roommate, Lavonne, pop up on her cell phone. Finally.
1: Surely he would know what was going on, right? He was probably calling with information about what was up with Andrea that would hopefully alleviate Julie of all this worry for her friend. Relief momentarily washed over her but it would be short-lived.
3: Then I finally got a call from LaVon, her roommate, and he was crying, like hysterical crying. I didn't know what was wrong. He couldn't tell me. He was just crying, and I'm like, what's going on? What happened? Why are you crying? What's going on? He was like, it's Andrea. And I'm like, oh my God, what? And he was like, she didn't come home last night. She didn't come here. What's going on? He was just like, "She's dead."
4: Julie was horrified, confused, and struggled to process the words he was saying.
3: I, I just lost it. Like. Between the silence and the confusion and the what the fuck are you talking about, there's those millions of, like, I did not just hear that. Like, what? 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 There's so many things you just said that I can't possibly have just heard.
2: The news was unthinkable, visceral, and gut-wrenching. Julie describes the rest of this day as a blur of tears, disbelief, denial, and emotional chaos— A surreal unfolding of communication between dismayed friends sharing scattered details of what they'd heard about what happened to Andrea. And while at this point, the details were scant, the few they had were agonizing.
1: Andrea's car had been found, and it was on fire. As the flames were extinguished, the trunk was opened, and the firefighters found the body of a young woman inside.
4: The car's registration and dental records would be used to identify the woman in the trunk as 24-year-old Andrea Leanne Nance. Who would want to harm this young woman, who is loved by so many, and most importantly, why? To answer all of this and more, you know the drill. We gotta go back.
2: At around 8 a.m. on the morning of May 8th, a resident of the Parkley North Apartments in Columbus had called 911 to report a car on fire. The car had been pushed down a hill into a wooded area of a north side Columbus apartment complex. It was a teal Chevy Cavalier. The car was found around four miles from Andrea's home near Easton Town Center. It was still smoldering when they found Andrea in the trunk.
1: And more of the details were heartbreaking because Andrea's autopsy would reveal no signs of trauma to her body besides the burns. She had died of smoke inhalation, which meant that she was alive when the car was set on fire. Andrea's car was in her name so law enforcement likely used that information to track down next of-kin, as well as find Andrea's home address. And when they arrived there, they found something alarming.
4: In the garage of Andrea's complex, the area where her parking spot was, there was newly purchased items scattered all over the ground. So this led the police to believe that Andrea may have been accosted in the garage as she was unloading groceries from her car. So they pulled surveillance from the Meijer store where Andrea normally shopped, and sure enough, she was grocery shopping in the afternoon before her car was found the following morning. She was there by herself for about 30 minutes, and they could see the exact items that she purchased, some of which were the same items that they found on the ground where Andrea's car should have been.
3: So what happened was that all the groceries that she had went and bought at the store, everything was scattered over the garage. The garage door was up, her car was gone, she was gone. Her purse was not there, but everything that she had bought was all over the the garage floor.
4: Given the perplexing elements of the case, it's no surprise that the media caught wind of the developing story. Once it hit the news that afternoon, it was like non- Stop!
3: It was pictures of like her high school graduation picture, pictures of the car when they found the car in the ravine. You know, pictures of it on fire, pictures of it charred. It just crazy. It's absolute craziness. And I started getting phone
4: calls from the police and from news reporters, and it was just chaos at that point. The police indicated that at that point, they had no idea if Andrea was killed by a stranger or someone she knew. And they said that they were interested in talking to anyone who was approached for any reason in the area by a white male stranger during the past week. The police refused to confirm whether this white male that they were looking for was a suspect or not.
1: So law enforcement pleaded for the public to come forward with information. Specifically, wanted to know if anyone had seen Andrea at a local convenience store and gas station within the time frame they believed she'd gone missing. They also announced that $5,000 was being offered for information leading to the arrest of her killer.
3: It just, none of it made sense. And we weren't in a theory place of the who done it or who would have done it. It was more of the who the fuck does something like this? What kind of savage. Thing can be so evil, I like because at that point, all we knew was she had been kidnapped and her car set on fire with her in it. She was dead. That's that's what we knew, and we're like, who the fuck would kidnap Andrea?
1: Andrea's purse and cell phone were missing from her car. So had this been a robbery gone wrong, or was someone who knew Andrea responsible and they were trying to make it appear as though it was a random robbery? Andrea had three jobs, so the suspect maybe could have been a customer or a colleague connected to any of these jobs. Anything was possible, and the police were keeping an open mind.
3: Why would somebody kidnap her? And then, you know, I guess we did start to think, like, was she raped? You know, it was like, did somebody kidnap her and rape her? And, you know, is that why this happened? So those kind of questions did kind of, I guess, come into our minds, but it was not the who done it because we couldn't even fathom. There's no way we knew anybody who would have done anything like this. We're just normal Midwest church going milk and beard people.
4: The investigation into Andrea's murder was underway. Meanwhile, Julie and all of their close friends were powerless to help and could do nothing but speculate and start the seemingly impossible task of accepting their new reality. The friends congregated and attempted to comfort each other, and we asked Julie how she processed this at the time. Numb.
3: I was just like, I don't know, a total disbelief. I remember so many people in our circle of friendship at my condo the night that everything broke, and we're just like present. We're just in each other's presence. There's just not. Conversation, there's not anything. It's just like you're, you're numb. The TV is on so you can hear what's breaking in the case or what's going on, but the, we're not engaged.
2: They just sat in the silence of disbelief. But then something cut through that silence like a knife.
3: That night, once we all had found out what happened, my cell phone rang and it said, Andrea.
2: Seeing Andrea's name pop up on her phone Sent a shot of adrenaline through Julie
3: I, I, I just, like, stood there And it was back like, flip phone days. And I, like, I saw it I answered, like, flipped it open so quickly Just to, like, hello Like, in that desperate, like, please tell me this is you And that was all a fucking mistake Like, none of that is real This is you, right? And that was nothing It was just a hang-up
2: Andrea's purse had not been found in the car with her, which meant that whoever killed Andrea was the one to make that hang-up call to Julie. It's really a chilling realization, and I can't imagine how she was feeling at that time. Because what followed, of course, would have been visceral fear. Following this paralyzing call, Julie and her friends just stayed put, not knowing what else to do.
3: We had no idea who it was, only that... Somebody had my best friend's cell phone and now they just called me. Do they know where we live? Can they find us? Like, I had no idea. I knew that Andrea wasn't involved in anything sketchy or shifty. Like, it's not like there was some kind of crazy drug ring or goofiness happening, but it was
4: not knowing was part of the fear. Investigators had the same questions that Andrea's loved ones did, and they worked to create a timeline of the day that Andrea was abducted. They learned that Andrea had visited her brother Greg earlier in the day and according to him, Andrea left late in the afternoon saying that she wanted to go home and take a nap. And it's unclear whether Andrea ended up taking that nap or not. But we know that she went to the grocery store and when she returned from that errand is when something happened to her in the garage of her building.
1: Investigators also pressed everyone in Andrea's life for information and they pressed some harder than others. One of these people was Andrea's roommate, LeVon because it was revealed that LeVon and his girlfriend were actually home when they believed that Andrea was abducted.
3: They were questioning him and his girlfriend. They were in their apartment and at home that whole, you know, night on the 8th. They didn't hear anything. LeVon was at home and his girlfriend was there. He just was none, none the wiser, had no idea what was going on. Their apartment, like the garage, was underneath the apartment. The way that the apartment was set up wouldn't have been conducive to hearing yelling or a fight unless it was exceptionally loud. And they wouldn't have had a TV or music on or, or any other factors. They basically questioned him and, it, you know, interrogated, giving, gathering the information, trying to find out everything they possibly could. They talked to me. They talked to her boyfriend and, you know, her parents, her family. LaVon answered all the questions they had. And to the police were
2: satisfied that he wasn't involved in any way. The police also learned of the on-again, off-again nature of Andrea and Patrick's relationship. So, of course, they wanted to question him as well. But Julie never suspected him, not for a second. And sorry to disappoint everyone, but it's not always the boyfriend or husband.
3: Police start with everything and everyone that would have been in that that circle. So Patrick was her boyfriend, super great guy. He and I are, have remained
4: friends and still stay friendly to this day. In terms of trying to identify the perpetrator or perpetrators, the investigators went into the obvious direction. Because Andrea's purse was not found with her in the car or anywhere around her garage, the assumption was that the perp had taken it. This meant that her bank cards would be in the perpetrator's possession as well. So they pulled the transactions for her ATM card. And sure enough, there had been more than one withdrawal, which occurred after they believed that Andrea was abducted. They pulled surveillance footage from the ATM locations where the card was used. And on the footage, they found two young guys using Andrea's debit card, inputting the correct PIN number at two locations. The first attempt was successful, and they pulled $400 from Andrea's account. The second attempt failed because her account was empty.
1: This was a huge development. The police released the images to the media, and quickly the pictures of the suspects were disseminated far and wide throughout Columbus. And as soon as the pictures began circulating, calls started pouring in. And one such call would break the case wide open.
4: month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com/degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is
0: active. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't miss promotions, huge events and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.
2: It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. the realreal.com. The realreal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermès, Cartier, Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply.
1: Police had their first real break in the case after obtaining images of two suspects as they used Andrea's ATM card to withdraw money from her account. A tip came in which offered a promising lead. The caller had seen the pictures of the two suspects and recognized them. The tipster was the principal of Mifflin High School, and the two depicted in the surveillance footage were two of his students. It's
3: like I was like, I know who that is. <laughs> That's how they got caught. Okay,
2: wait. So could teenagers really be responsible for this? Apparently, yes. The police went to Mifflin High School and pulled two teenagers from their classes— and they arrested 16-year-old high school junior Justin Robinson and 17-year-old senior Marcus Sellers. A third teen was later implicated as well, and his name was Andre Conley, and he was also 16. Julie was truly baffled when the news broke.
3: Disbelief. Complete disbelief. And, like, there's no way. I'm like, you got to be wrong. To find out that they were students, high school kids,
4: blew me away. Here's what 16-year-old Justin Robinson told the police when he was interrogated. He said that he had absolutely nothing to do with the death of Andrea. He'd simply been approached at school by Marcus Sellers about using an ATM card to pull money out of an account. Marcus asked him if he wanted to make some easy money. And to do that, all he had to do was make a withdrawal from an ATM and he could keep a cut of the cash. Justin claimed that he had no idea how Marcus obtained the card and he didn't ask. And of the money that he pulled from the ATM, he was allowed to keep 60 bucks, while the rest of the money was split between Marcus and Andre. Justin Robinson was so adamant that he had nothing to do with abducting or killing Andrea that he agreed to take a lie detector test. And ultimately, he passed it.
1: But the two other suspects, however, Marcus Sellers and Andre Conley, they had been involved in hurting Andrea, and they would eventually confess. And the cruel and callous nature of their crimes. Are so hard to explain, but here is what they said. Andrea and Marcus were driving around on the evening of March 8th, 2004, when they realized that they were low on gas. So, with robbery in mind, they started looking for someone that they could rob. That's when they spotted Andrea, and she was unloading groceries from her car. At around 8 p.m., only hours before Andrea was supposed to meet Julie at the bar for their girls' night, the two teenagers approached her.
2: They accosted Andrea and forced her into the trunk of her own car at gunpoint. Marcus and Andre drove around aimlessly with Andrea in the trunk, helpless. It was probably so scary and awful. They ultimately crashed the car into a wooded ravine next to the complex, about four miles from Andrea's apartment. Then they left her there alone in the car for hours. The next morning, Marcus and Andre borrowed a car that belonged to Marcus's sister. Then they went to the gas station and bought a dollar's worth of gas to fill up a gas can provided by Andre. And once they returned to the scene, and this is truly like the most horrifying thing I've ever heard, and I cannot believe these teenagers did this, Marcus doused the inside passenger compartment of the car with gas. Then he popped the trunk with Andre inside of it and poured gasoline all over her and all over the trunk before slamming the trunk closed again. It's like one of the most callous things I've ever fucking heard. Marcus then struck one match that didn't light. He struck another match, threw it in the car, and ignited the car. And then Marcus and Andre drove to school like it's any normal fucking day.
4: And it was at that point that they approached Justin Robinson. They asked him if he wanted to make some money. And when he agreed, they handed him Andrea's bank card and told him to drive to a bank. He withdrew $360 and kept 60 Sellers and Conley split the rest. This whole thing is so fucking incredibly cruel and incredibly senseless. It's really just hard to comprehend it all. So beyond the confessions and the surveillance video implicating the teens, when the police searched the backpacks of the kids, they found Andrea's cell phone in Andre Conley's bag. With the cold, horrifying truth of this confession, Andrea's loved ones understandably assumed that these teens must be juvenile delinquents of some sort. How could they not be?
3: And then I'm like, well, they had to be in a gang. That happened out of Easton. Yeah, I had to be in a gang. And no, they're not, they're not in a gang.
1: But they weren't in a gang. They weren't criminals. From the outside looking in, they were typical, normal high school kids.
3: So Marcus Sellers was the oldest of them. And I think he was the 17-year-old at the time. But nobody thought the, that he was a bad kid. I mean, he was athletic. He was involved in his school. It seemed like he had a normal
1: family. Marcus Sillars was on both the junior varsity basketball and baseball teams. These kids came from supposedly nice families. Their parents were horrified to learn that their kids were being suspected of murder. And of all things, Andre Conley's father was actually a retired Columbus firefighter. So the fact that his son was being accused of abducting a 24-year-old woman and harming her this way was unfathomable for him.
2: For Julie, learning the identity of these young men who took her best friend's life did not alleviate the pain of losing Andrea, nor did it erase the knowledge of what Andrea had gone through. Julie was devastated and had no idea how to process what had happened.
3: I ended up taking a leave from my job. I couldn't function. I couldn't work. I just was in constant grief and depression. I was afraid to get out of my own car if I was going somewhere. It had to be in the daylight. I would not go out at night.
4: Another thing that weighed heavily on Julie was that she was powerless to comfort Andrea's family who were obviously completely gutted.
3: Just like seeing them in their pain. Cause it's like as close as I was with Andrea and as much as I felt like she was my sister, that was their sister. That was their daughter. That was their, their youngest. That was their aunt, their friend, their cousin, their, their everything. And it's like, Seeing them upset and crying just made me physically ill. Like I'm, I'm going in the bathroom at the funeral home, just throwing up. Like I'm sick over this. This is fucking disgusting. I can't. You know, there's, there's nothing you can do. I have no words. No words are gonna make. What can I say to her mom? What can I possibly say that's gonna comfort or provide any kind of peace or or make anything better? Not one thing.
1: Another thing that loomed over Julie at this time was her wedding, which was scheduled to take place only months after Andrea's murder, and remember Andrea was supposed to be Julie's maid of honor. The thought of going forward with the wedding given what had happened just seemed impossible.
3: And this all happened like 3 months before my wedding. I tried to call it off and my well pause, postpone it, not to call it off, but he's not my ex-husband. <laughs> and my family just were like it's it's you're just not dealing with the grief you got to go in the grief counseling you got it this is you know andrea wouldn't have wanted you to call it off, and i'm like i just i can't i have nothing to give to any of you so i do not want to get married right now they all kind of convinced me that i was just being crazy and grieving so we got married and it was really awful and, now, and then it's like you get your wedding pictures back and your best friend's up there. It's not part of it. <laughs> There's nothing
2: there. As Marcus Sellers and Andre Connolly remained in custody, and the investigation into their crimes continued, more shocking developments were revealed. It turns out the kidnapping and murder of Andrea was not the first crime they'd committed. Columbus police would eventually connect the teens to a string of unsolved robberies in the area
3: these kids were not known for being bad kids. Turns out, nobody knew they had this secret sub-life on the other side. They were going out at night for, I don't know, I remember if it was two weeks or two months, but they were robbing women at gunpoint in parking lots. One
2: victim had been a pizza delivery driver. They were confronted after delivering a pizza to a home. And it turns out the delivery was bogus— Whoever called for this pizza did so to lure the driver there. Now, as the driver turned around to leave after realizing this, a man had what appeared to be a semi-automatic rifle robbed him. And of course, it wasn't really a man. It was these teenagers. The robber in this case took $40 out of the victim's pocket, ripped his cell phone off his belt, and told him to get in the trunk of his own car. The delivery driver was able to get away, but his car was stolen. The car was eventually dumped at Mifflin High School. Ironically, obviously, this is where Andre and Marcus attend school.
4: A 20-year-old woman was also robbed at gunpoint outside of her apartment on February 15th, and this was only a few weeks before Andrea's abduction. She told the police that two young men approached her as she returned home after having dinner at a restaurant. The suspects were hiding between two cars. The larger of the two pointed a gun at her head and demanded cash. She told the men whose faces were masked by bandanas that she had no money. The smaller man grabbed her purse, and they both ran. Marcus and Andre would ultimately confess to these robberies as well. So,
2: yes, Marcus and Andre didn't have criminal records before murdering Andrea, but that's only because they hadn't been caught.
3: They're just kids who wanted more stuff. They were greedy. They wanted more money to go and buy shit that their parents couldn't afford to buy them, which, you know was greed the american way i don't fucking know i grew up in a not real good area i I didn't even know anybody in the shitty area i grew up that acted that way or that was that animalistic and, and criminal i just still to this day i'm like they were teenagers what a waste of the life that they had been given
4: In looking at the robberies Marcus and Andre had committed previously, the obvious question arises, I'm sure you're thinking as well. Why didn't they just rob Andrea? Why did they have to take her life?
3: I still don't know or understand what prompted them to kill her. I I mean, like, they left, they had that whole night, they dumped her car in that ravine, went back the next morning before they went to school. So they had time to think about like well what do we do they had time and they they chose to get a gas a can of gasoline and set my best friend on fire like I, I just can't I still ask like who the fuck does that what is wrong with you people they had been doing this it was like they set some kind of bull to do it like they would take them take the money take the cards take whatever and go buy whatever andrea was the only one that they kidnapped and killed i don't know if everybody else just kind of went along and gave them what they wanted and andrea was a fighter i can guarantee they were like give me a person to like uh after my dead body so they made it happen There's no fucking way she would have gone anywhere with them willingly. She was
2: taken. 16-year-old Robinson was ultimately charged with a delinquency count of receiving stolen property. And he was given probation until he turned 18, a very light sentence. But remember, he wasn't involved. And the police really did believe that he didn't know the card he was using belonged to was stolen, let alone from someone who'd been murdered police zeroed on as Marcus Sellers as the ringleader, including the string of crimes that they committed before. So Andre Connolly was offered a plea deal in exchange for full cooperation against Marcus Sellers, and he agreed to testify against him. He pled guilty on charges of involuntary manslaughter, aggravated arson, and aggravated robbery. With his cooperation, Andre was sentenced to 26 years in prison for his role in Andrea's murder. Without the plea deal, He faced life in prison without parole. Andrea's father, James, made a victim impact statement in court, and he said, I hope I never run into anyone like you. You, who could have, but did nothing to stop the slaughter of our daughter. To be honest, I'm not a monster, Connolly said in response. And he said, just like everyone else, I made a mistake. And for what it's worth, I'm sorry.
1: It was ultimately determined that Marcus would not be tried in juvenile court. He'd be prosecuted as an adult. He was facing charges of aggravated murder and one each of aggravated robbery and aggravated burglary. Even though he was being charged as an adult due to the fact that he was 17 when he committed the crime, he was ineligible to receive the death penalty. So
4: even though Andre Conley agreed to testify against Marcus, it ultimately wouldn't be necessary. After the state consulted with Andrea's family, a plea deal was reached. Marcus would plead guilty and receive a 45 years to life sentence. And this means he'll be at the age of retirement by the time he'll be up for parole.
2: Julie was relieved that the perpetrators pleaded guilty, sparing them all the agony of a trial. Although trials do sometimes answer much thought of questions. Instead, in this case, they
3: remain. Yeah, I want to know the why. Why did they do this? Why did they kill her? Why? And I don't know that that's the answer I'll ever get. And like, do they have remorse? Do they regret what they did? I would have to think that you do. But at the same time, I would think that no normal human on the planet would ever do something like this. I don't know if they feel remorse. I don't know if they feel bad. I don't know if they understand what they put their own families through, let alone what they put Andrea's family through.
1: The process of healing from a traumatic loss was not a straight line. Julie reeled from this for years to come. And she still grapples with the pain today.
3: During that time, my life was awful. I ended up having an affair. I ended my marriage. I lost my shit. Like, I quit my job. I I don't even know what I'm doing with my life. My mom came down with breast cancer, and it was, like, nothing that I thought I could do. I was focused on... It was just, like...
4: Trauma after trauma after trauma.
3: And I've been going to counseling ever since.
4: And there's one point Julie really, really wants to drive home. What happened to Andrea could have happened to anyone.
3: Do you think that something like that will never happen to you? You need to think, I have no idea if that would ever happen to me, because it could. I really want people to be very aware of their surroundings and... You know, it, it's not, we don't live in an innocent culture anymore. And true crime, you know, the the podcast, everything, it might be, like, just we might be American junkies that like to listen to this shit. I don't really know. But I think, for me, what I want the light shed most on is how just the innocence gets taken so fast and, like, the damage that it's done when people just don't think about anything other than themselves.
2: After Julie lost Andrea, she attempted to write down all the things she loved about her and how much their friendship meant to her. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there are some of her thoughts and words that I think act as appropriate parting words for today's episode. Andrea was a joker, a dancer, a card-playing, beer-loving, silly girl— She was a young lady, a woman, and an open-hearted friend. She listened, gave her opinions, even when you didn't want to hear them. She loved being in love and having friends close. What she never got to do was be a professional cake decorator, not that she did it so well, a cop, or a sheep farmer. I'm not sure how all those things go together, but for her, that's what she wanted. The gift of loving a friend is something more precious than anything else in the world. It's something that cannot be bought, borrowed, or stolen. I ask that today and every day you remember your loved ones. If you haven't spoken to them for a while or seen them, give them a call or send a quick email. You never know what or when your last words with that person will be.
4: Well, a huge thank you to Julie for being our First Degree guest today and being so vulnerable with us. Thank you so much. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at thefirstdegree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack fannick. Join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time. Follow us on TikTok by searching The First Degree with three E's and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. Plus, join our Patreon. And join our Patreon. (laughs) That old thing. That old thing.
1: And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close.
2: But not that close. Wow, my voice cracked there. We're all a little tired today. We're doing our best.
1: Happy Epitaph Day.
2: Happy Epitaph Day. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Sources for this episode include The Columbus Dispatch, NBC4Columbus, ghana news fox 19 the news reporter columbus the toledo blade court documents and as always our 1st read re-guest is always our largest source
0: this is a big year the ohio lottery's golden anniversary 50 years of excitement of growing jackpots and crossed fingers 50 years of funding for schools of changed lives and brightened days 50 years of fun and that is worth celebrating